few worship songs resemble it or know what to do with its theology. So thanks, guys. Um, thanks also, Stuart, for pronouncing my last name correctly. Yeah. You don't pronounce a lot of things correctly around here, but you got that. Thank you. Um, like I said, this is a tough text. We have to preach the tough texts. Go home and make a list of those texts that you find most difficult. Study them, and then teach them. I think those are the ones that will teach us profound wisdom. I'm not making any promises about you getting wise from what I'm about to say, but call it a hunch. The passage we are going to reflect on today is not your typical Bible passage. It comes from the imprecatory Psalms. It is a psalm that sounds angry and vengeful. For many years I asked, why is this in the Bible? In fact, when I first read through the Bible when I was in high school, going through the psalms, I read this one and I quickly turned the page because I didn't want to think about it. These psalms are angry, sounding, and vengeful, and I ask, what, what is God trying to tell us in them? These are the questions we're going to take up today. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us to sing songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on that day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, blessed is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Blessed is the one who seizes your babies and dashes them against the rocks. How is this in the Bible? How? What are the Psalms? The Psalms are tell the story of God's people. The earlier psalms speak of the life of David, the first king, and the later ones lament the failure of human kingship moving forward to the true king. This one, located towards the end, is written during the time of exile. God's people were oppressed, enslaved, carried off into exile. They lost their homes, they were burned, and their children were slaughtered. Their neighbors, their brothers, the Edomites, cheered on the Babylonians because of what they could get from the spoil, watching as they pillaged. Israel watched the brutal Babylonian army murder their children in front of them, dashing them against rocks, a truly brutal army. And then the Babylonians mocked them. Sing us a happy song while you sit there and weep, rubbing salts in the wounds. This is a song of a people that have been hurt and frustrated, demeaned, and are in terrible despair. As Israelites consider what happened to them, they cry out for vengeance for God to do to the Edomites and the Babylonians what they did to them, dash their babies against rocks. Their bitterness of their words is bone-chilling. It rattles us to even hear it. 
How can a psalm of anger and vengeance and brutality even be in the Bible? Is this giving us license to treat our enemies this way? Now, I wouldn't normally teach on a passage like this. And it seems odd that I would choose this for my very first chapel. I wouldn't want to give you the impression that I am morbid and vengeful. I try not to be. But the imprecatory psalms inevitably come up. As a pastor, I would tell my congregation, pray through the psalms. And yet people would come to me and say, Pastor, I started praying through the psalms, but what about this one? And I didn't have a ready answer. In fact, I knew one person in the community that picked up a Bible one day years ago and read a passage similar to this and was so disturbed and scared at what she saw, she didn't pick up the Bible for many years after that. What she saw in the Bible actually terrified her rather than bringing her good news. Many of us have similar experiences reading other parts of Scripture where we see this and we say, how can that be there? Why is it there? What could God possibly be saying in these words? Does God want us to be vengeful? Vengeance just doesn't seem like the heart of God, so why is it there? Why is this in the Bible? Well, I suspect this passage does have something to say about God, from God. But before I walk you through that, can we just admit something? The Bible isn't always clear. It isn't always easy to understand. I talk to some Christians who think that everything is clear in the Bible. That all you have to do is pray, crack your knuckles, and the answer pops into your head. To which I want to ask, are we really reading the same book? There are lots of passages that are beautifully clear. They look great on calendars and on Facebook memes. But then there are others that simply are not. And this is one of them. We have learned, I have learned, that listening to anything that is worth listening to in any meaningful relationship takes work. You cannot passively listen to your wife while you're watching television, men. I've tried. It doesn't work. Listening takes work. And if we're going to listen to God, we need to work at it. Brian Zahn once said, The Bible is like a vast terrain of mountains and valleys. All the land is God's word. But sometimes you can get stuck in a valley. And this passage is one of them. If you go to the peaks, you can see the whole terrain clearly. The Gospels, I think, are the peaks. John 3.16 is a peak. This passage, I think, can be a valley. As we will see, this is just one of many passages that we need to read through Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all Scripture. Jesus is the summit of Scripture. From Him we see everything else clearly. Another way of saying it is that we believe that all Scripture is inspired and does able to teach us salvation and righteousness, but as William Newton Clark once said, not all Scripture is inspired the same way and teaches us salvation the same way either. God was pleased to use multiple methods in one book. This psalm teaches us something profound about God and something profound about ourselves, just not in the same way other passages would. John Calvin once called the psalms the mirror of the soul. One purpose the psalms have is to express what's in our souls, to look deep down within us and get what's in there out. The Psalms are unique because while they are the the Word of God, they are first our words to God. 
The prayers of the Psalms are our words taken by the Holy Spirit, sanctified and then stated back to teach us something about how to relate to him and what he is like. I think we just experienced that when Christine just prayed. Her words to God revealed something about our God profoundly, and I felt it. That's what our worship does. This psalm helps us be honest with ourselves, in being honest with ourselves, naming what's going on inside of us. We can then be honest with God, knowing God is listening. And that's my first point after that long preface. God is listening. Hope you aren't too hungry, by the way. God is always listening. Do believers ever feel crushed with hurt? These do. Do believers feel like their faith has been shattered? These did. Can believers feel incredible pain, frustration, and bitterness? Yes, they can. Does that make them evil? No, it makes them human. This might seem obvious, but the only way you are ever going to relate to God is by being a human. So you might as well start. The Jews of this passage are angry because they lost their homes, they lost their land, their security and safety were gone, their temple was destroyed, their very way of relating to God was destroyed, their children were killed, their past and their future were gone, and the only thing that they could make sense of is that if God is just, this is what justice should look like, vengeance, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They sat there and grieved as they were mocked. And they cried out to God with all the anger they are feeling. I wonder how many atheists there are out there that are actually Christians that have never learned they could lament like this. This psalm does not condone anger, but does say God is listening to us when we are angry. When we are hurt, when we are stripped of the things that make life stable and good, God meets us there. We worship God with us, Emmanuel, finding us, listening to us, wherever we're at, including times of anguish. God does not wait for us to get over our anger and our hurt to meet with us. He meets us in our hurt. The question is not whether or not it's appropriate to pray this way, longing for vengeance, but whether it's appropriate to share what's ever on our hearts with God, no matter where you are. P.T. Forsyth once said, the answer to prayer is often prayer itself. I was reminded of this truth one time. I coordinated a soup kitchen down in Toronto during doctoral studies. There was a man who came in. He had a lot of problems. He faced homelessness and alcoholism. His life was just complete self-destruction. I had to ask around, what is this guy's story? This man, a native man, had been abused terribly in the residential school system. One other coordinator of a drop-in center a few uh, blocks away told me this story. During an open mic night where, some, where everyone could come in and offer prayer for the community, this man decided to come forward. People prayed blessing on their communities and thanked God and praised Jesus. And so we were surprised to see him come up as he took the mic he began to scream curse words. F you, God. F those priests for what they did to me and my sister. F them. He didn't say F. I'm just, I grew up being, having my mouth washed out with soap every time I swore, so I can't really say it without a gag reflex. <laughs> Why didn't you stop him? Did you stop him, I asked? No. I let him say his piece like everybody else. Why did you do that, I asked. 
Because Spencer, at the end of the day, this coordinator said to me, it was still a prayer. It was directed at God, and I believe God was listening, and at the end of the day, he needed to say it, to get it off his chest. There was a noticeable change in that man after that blow-up. I think in order to start healing, he had to name the raw hurt within him. The hurt that he didn't know how to process. God loves us in our hurt and our brokenness, brokenness. And for that reason, I believe God is listening to us when we are angry. And he was listening to that angry rant of a prayer. Not because there was something moral about it, but because God always is listening. The great answer to prayer is prayer itself often. Why? Because we worship a God that is always listening. What are your hurts? Has someone hurt you? Can you remember the most angry you've ever been in your life? If you remember that, I think in that moment you understand what this psalm is all about. Are you angry at others? Tell God. Do you have doubt or fear or hurt or hate? Tell God that too. Perhaps you are even angry at God himself. Tell him that as well. He knows, he understands, and he is always listening. He listened to the anger of Israel's heart. It's in our scriptures. We know it to be true, and, th- and so he is listening to us. God knows that you, what you haven't in you, the bitterness of your soul that sometimes you think you are ashamed of, that it's there. He knows it's there. You can let it out, or you can keep it in and fester. You can let it out and begin the healing. This is my next point. When we realize that God is listening, we can entrust God with our anger. Expressing our hurts to God means placing our hurt in His hands. And this is what Israel is doing right here. Miroslav Volf once pointed out, the scriptures that vent their anger to God actually disarmed their anger towards others. When we vent to God, we restrain our vengeance towards others. Thus, it's not so much what Psalm 137 says. For many of us, this is simply not the language of how we have been hurt. It is what it allows us to do, what it does in us. It permits us to release our anger to the true judge, rather than being judges ourselves. Notice Psalm 137. The psalmist never implies that they want to take vengeance themselves. When we do this, we can place our anger in God's hands, and we can even then do good to our enemies. Consider Romans 12. Do not repay anybody evil for evil. Do not take vengeance, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. When we entrust our anger to God, we focus on God. That means we can then focus on goodness again. Notice for Israel who prayed these psalms, before it and after it, refocus on God's love. That is the process of prayer. The process continues. The journey continues. We must press on with Christ walking with us up the mountain. When we pray with our anger, we are able to heal our anger. We focus on God and not ourselves. And this is where the healing happens. When we entrust our anger with God, we turn to God and His goodness. And then we have to ask, if vengeance is His, what does God's vengeance look like? Not our vengeance, but His. My third point is that when we trust God with justice, when we are ready to accept it, 
And I say that because so often the broken are in a state of hurt, we don't want to demean him. One writer once said, the great power of God is his perfect gentleness. When we are ready to accept this, we realize God's justice is mercy. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, a great mountaintop scripture. We have heard that it was once said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In other words, do to them what they've done to us. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them your other cheek also. If anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your cloak as well. You have heard that it is said, love your, en- love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Then you may be children of your Father in heaven, who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain to the righteous, including the unrighteous. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The end is important. Jesus has been talking about the true character of God this whole time. God is perfect. How? Not in punishment, but love. Not in moral indignation, but mercy. The unpolluted, pure mercy of God is his holiness that we are called to in perfection. The journey of scripture calls us from vengeance to mercy, traversing one to the other. And it's not to say that God does not judge or that we do not have free will, but we know that in Christ he has not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And so we have to realize, as Martin Luther King once said, if justice is an eye for an eye, the whole world will end up blind. We have to ask ourselves, then, are we willing to see this? Are we willing to see Scripture through the eyes of Christ and then see our broken world through the eyes of Scripture? Are we willing to see? From Sinai to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Golgotha, the Bible is teaching us that God's justice is not retribution, not even restitution, but reconciliation. How do we know this? It all comes down to how does God repay his enemies? When we turn to God for justice, we are the ones who realize we have done wrong. We are all sinners. We all deserve judgment. And he has chosen to take our judgment on himself. Bonhoeffer says in his beautiful little book on the Psalms, when God's people pray in vengeful anger to kill the children of those who've killed theirs, God offers his only son to stop the cycle of sin. God in love takes our enemy's place. Why? Because he took our place. Romans 5.10 says, While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. When we are angry and in despair, the psalm allows us to vent our anger, knowing that God always listens. And when we know that God is listening, we can focus on him and entrust him with our anger, knowing that he is judge. And then when we know that he is judge, we have to allow him, the sovereign God, to judge as he judges how he sees fit. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So how does a sovereign God repay? The sovereign God elected to repay the death of his son with forgiveness. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Or as he said to the very disciples that fled, peace to you. This is the summit of scripture. God's plan was not vengeance, but reconciliation. We have the choice today and every day hereafter, as long as we have days, to step further on that journey to the mountain of healing, knowing Jesus is walking with us. That brings us to now. I ask again, who has hurt you? Who makes your blood boil? 
who in your life, when you think about them, you can only think of what they deserve in judgment. Who are the Babylonians and the Edomites of your life? If you are discouraged, talk to God. If you feel ashamed that you feel this way, tell him. That is the process of healing. And the process works. Trust me, I do. I know. Those of you who know my story know that my mother was abused. It never came to violence, though the person who did it was a violent person. I've learned that there are forms of abuse far more subtle. My mom remarried a man with an ill-formed conscience. He would verbally threaten her and demean her to get his way. He was a big man and very intimidating. I remember being down in my room as a kid in high school, listening to them arguing. I heard his voice boom from the ceiling of my basement room. You're just a stupid woman, Susan. Don't you dare leave or else I'll break your arm. When my mother developed cancer, he began withholding money from her and the accounts to make sure that she couldn't use it on medical needs. He was banking on her dying. He told her one time that he needed to make sure that he was taken care of after she was gone. My mom eventually split from him. The police were called several occasions. I would come home from Bible college to police visits. My mother did leave, and in the remaining years of her life, struggling with cancer, I can tell you she summoned more strength, more will, more intellect than few able-bodied people could summon over their entire lives. But that is a story for another time. Suffice it to say, I hated my stepdad. He disgusted me for how he treated my mother. I would fantasize about beating him up. And when I realized I wouldn't, I prayed, God, give him what he deserves. And of course, I had a few ideas of what he deserved. I prayed Psalm 137, and I just didn't know it. I suspect you have too at some point in your life. In your life. The years went on. I learned from my stepfather's brother that he had been abused. He had been treated worse than the other siblings by a father who was the bigot that he had now become. After that, I did not see my stepfather in the same way. It humanized him, and I remember praying, God, just stop him from hurting other people. Help him to realize what he's done and change. The last time I saw my stepfather was at my mother's funeral. He came into the visitation, and my family and I kicked up a bad fuss. We did not want him there. We wanted the funeral attendant to remove him. And then my sister surprisingly said, no, 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 let's just let him mourn and let him go. And she walked him up to the casket, and we all realized then that it was a terribly indecent thing to stop anybody from mourning. We watched him go up to the casket, give flowers that simply said, thank you for all the good memories. And he left, and I never saw him after that. I realized that day that, I, that he did love my mother, albeit with a very broken and distorted love. I also realized that including him in that visitation was just a small and significant act of me forgiving him, ending the cycle of hurt and embracing peace. I remember praying after that, God, after that day, God, can you bless him? Can you take care of him? Heal him, and while you're at it, heal me too. Heal what's going on in me. 
In preparing the sermon last night, I decided to Google his name. He passed away a few months ago, and my family was never contacted. Now, many years later, as I sat there reading that information, the only thing I could feel was sadness, but without anger. My heart grew strangely warm and glad at the thought that he could be in heaven. Why? Because he is a sinner just like me. For me to say that prayer, to think that authentically and quite unexpectedly, let me assure you, began with praying those original vengeful prayers all those years ago. It took over 10 years. Healing takes time. The journey takes time. God had a few things to teach me since then. God was listening to all of those, answering those prayers, and I trust he still is. But thank God he didn't answer them in the way that I wanted to originally. Dear friends, never delay a kind word until tomorrow because you do not know what tomorrow will bring. I would have liked to say to him that I forgave him, that I didn't wish him any ill will. I don't know what that would have done, but for forgiveness sake and for Christ's sake, I wish I could have. Do not delay this sacred journey of prayer, of lament and honesty, of trust and healing and reconciliation. It is a beautiful one. As Dorothy Day once said, the journey to heaven, step by step, is heaven itself. And so let's begin this journey afresh today. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we want to speak with you and we refuse to do the work of listening. Sometimes we want you to speak and we forget the blessing of knowing that you are always listening. Help us to listen to you. Help us to trust you with our cares and our worries, our fears and our failures, even our hurt and hate. You know it's there. We know that you are listening and you are ready to heal us. In Christ, you forgave our sins, and so help us to forgive others. You forgave the sins of our enemies as well. Help us to remember that. Let us go from here ready to do the work of honesty and trust and humility and repentance and reconciliation. May we forgive others as we have been forgiven and teach us to love others as you love us. Inventing our cares to you, knowing that you listen. Now teach us to listen to the hurts of others. May we not shrink back from the questions and complaints of the broken. Empower us by your spirit to be priests in our community as you are our high priest. Give us opportunity this week to be light in dark places as you have shone in ours. These things we pray in your name. Amen.